we'll give everybody the customary five or so months. But no, I actually haven't read Hell's Angels. I did I did really enjoy the interviews with him and the Hell's Angel guys though. Oh, okay. I don't know. I haven't I thought does those exist in isolation somewhere? It's so weird too, because like he's so young and he's sitting there arguing with like the, the Hell's Angel, like the leader on TV. That's funny. I didn't know that. But that I mean the book it's it just does what a good you know, beyond like the caricature of like con- gonzo journalism and what it became known as, like it's just a very, very thorough like partisan ethnography, basically. And it's just good. It's just good, you know. And I, it's like my go-to mental because he because he writes a lot of it is about like what the Hell's Angels actually are and then what the public perception of them is. And so he goes to all these examples of like towns that were shutting down they heard the hell's angels were coming and stuff like that even when even when it was like there what they weren't coming there or there was like one or two of them coming so it's a lot about like public perception and like mass hysteria and stuff pretty interesting they also seem like total piles like the, the hell's angel i suppose that's our customary five minutes um so might as well dive in uh welcome everybody to the anti-oedipus chapter four section two the is the molar unconscious Molecular. Oh, I'm sorry. Molecular unconscious. I've got the dentist on my mind. I apologize. Um, so if it, I'll, I'll read the first paragraph just to get us going. And then if anyone wants to, um, we'll obviously have our discussion. If anybody wants to read it anytime, um, since this isn't a movie theater, we won't popcorn. Just let me know and you can read. Cynicism has said, or claimed to have said, everything there is to say about love. It is a matter of a copulation of social and organic machines on a large scale. At bottom, love is in the organs. At bottom, love is a matter of economic determinations, money. But what is properly cynical is to claim a scandal where there is none to be found, and to pass for bold while lacking boldness. Better the delirium of common sense than its platitude, for the prime evidence points to the fact that desire does not take as its odd as its object persons or things, but the entire surroundings that it traverses, the vibrations and flows of every sort to which it is joined, introducing therein breaks and captures an always nomadic and migrant desire, characterized first of all by its so-called gigantism. No one has showed this more clearly than Charles Foyer. In a word, the social as well as biological surroundings are the object of unconscious investments that are necessarily desiring or libidinal, in contrast with the pre-conscious investments of need or of interest. The libido as sexual energy is the direct investment of masses, of large aggregates, and of social and organic fields. We have difficulty understanding what principle psychoanalysis uses to support its conception of desire, what it it maintains that the libido must be desexualized or even sublimated in order to proceed to the social investments, and inversely, that the libido only resexualizes these investments during the course of pathological regression. Unless the assumption of such a conception is still familialism, that is, an assumption holding that sexuality operates only in the family 
and must be transformed in order to invest larger aggregates. Can we just walk through this real quick? Because I this I actually really like this section. But when they're saying the libido as sexual energy is the direct investment of masses of large aggregates and of social and organic fields. So that's an interesting um, way of framing it because they're saying desire is this thing that's on the molecular scale. But then libido as sexual energy. So is it, this is just basically connecting with their argument from before that all of the libidinal things that we experience in like an edible framework come from the investments of social and technical machines is that it and that's why the li- sexual energy isolated from desire and production is already kind of on a molar level is that am i right in saying that wait where exactly are we in the t- oh. 292 yeah no i mean man um Alyosha, can you just Read exactly the sentence you were talking about. It was 292 to 293 just now. Um, the libido as sexual energy is the direct investment of masses, large aggregates, and of social and organic fields. And then they make their critique of psychoanalysis. Because just, just saying that in and of itself, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but then I'm just trying to frame it in the rest of the um, chapter. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what there is their own voice and what's the position that they are critiquing, actually. Well, they go on right after that to say, we have difficulty understanding you know, what psychoanalysis says to support its conception of desire when it says that the libido must be desexualized or sublimated in order to proceed to the social investments. So it's... It seems like for them, oh, somebody linked Charles Fourier in the group. Um, it seems like for them that it's nonsensical to somehow s- say that the social investments are secondary to this primary sexual desire, and that sexual desire is kind of always already social, which which does sort of track to me intrinsically. But I've I've missed out on a few sessions, guys. I'm, I apologize. That's why I'm trying to catch up. I get the sense too that when they're when they're talking about libidinal energy, right, which is like that. So like that that goes back to the first synthesis, but it can also refer to I think desiring production itself. And they're going to follow this up in that sentence, right? The truth is that sexuality is everywhere, right? So like libidinal energy is sexual. So like I, I think they're one thing they're critiquing here is the idea that. Um, Psychoanalysis would take desire or libidinal energy, desexualize it, or or talk about it as sublimated, in order to talk about the social investments, and then to proceed from there, right? Libidinal energy resexualizes these investments. I think Deleuze and Guattari are cutting through this to simply say that no, th- th- those investments are also sexual, and I think they're getting at too, like it's not. You don't have to, there's no desexualization and resexualization through regression, right? Like it's, it's all, since it's connected and since it's got these breaks, um, the libidinal flow as sexual is consistent. Also, maybe we can just go back to the last sentence of the previous paragraph where they say, 
like this ties into the whole section where they talk about Reich. Um, and they say, as to the whole of Reichian theory, it possesses the incomparable advantage of showing the double pole of the libido as a mole molecular formation on the submicroscopic scale and as an investment of the molar formations on the scale of social and organic aggregates. All that is missing is the confirmations of common sense. Why, in what sense, is this sexuality? And from there they jump to laugh and cynicism about love. Yeah, and if we follow that thread of um, the molecular, or excuse me, the molar, um, I thought I saw that in here. Properly delirium. Here we go. Uh, in a word, the social as well as biological surroundings are the object of unconscious investments that are necessarily desiring or libidinal, in contrast with the preconscious investments of need or of interest. So I, I think when they're, I think the expansion on that part that you just read, um, Lou, is that, that mo those molecular um, investments. Uh, are attended by the the, the, uh, the the libidinal force, which is sexual. Yeah, I think we should just read on, but I really do not want to read in English. Like that doesn't just work. Uh, just doesn't work. I can read. That's all right. Go for it. Um, the truth is that sexuality is everywhere. The way a bureaucrat fondles his records. A judge administers justice, a businessman causes money to circulate, the way the bourgeoisie fucks the proletariat, and so on. And there's no need to resort to metaphors anymore for the libido to go by way of metamorphoses. Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused. Flags, nations, armies, banks get a lot of people aroused. A revolutionary machine is nothing if it does not acquire at least as much force as these coercive machines have for producing breaks and mobilizing flows. It is not through a desexualizing extension that the libido invests the large aggregates. On the contrary, it is through a restriction, a blockage, and a reduction that the libido is made to repress its flows in order to contain them in the narrow cells of the type couple, family, persons, person, objects. And doubtless such a blockage is necessarily justified. The libido does not come to consciousness except in relation to a given body, a given person that it takes as object. But our object choice itself refers to a conjunction of flows of life and of society, that this body and this person intercept, receive, and transmit, always within a biological, social, and historical field where we are equally immersed or with which we communicate. The persons to whom our love are dedicated, including the, sorry, uh, just lost my place, um, per, including the parental persons, intervene only as points of connection, of disjunction, of conjunction of flows, whose libidinal tenor of a properly unconscious investment they translate. Thus, no matter how well-grounded the love blockage is, it curiously changes its function, depending on whether it engages desire in the Oedipal impasses of the couple and the family in the service of the repressive machines, or whether, on the contrary, it condenses a free energy capable of fueling a revolutionary machine. Here again, everything has already been said by Fourier, when he shows how the two contrary directions of the captivation or the mechanization of the passions. Um, but we always make love with worlds and our love addresses itself to this libidinal property of our lover, to either close himself off or to open up to more spacious worlds, to masses and large aggregates. 
there's always something statistical in our loves and something belonging to the laws of large numbers. And isn't it in this way that we must understand the famous formula of Marx? The relationship between man and woman is the direct, natural, and necessary relation of person to person. That is, the relationship between the two sexes, man and woman, is only the measure of the relationship of sexuality in general, insofar as it invests large aggregates, man and man. Whence, what came to be called the species determination of the sexuality of the two sexes. And must it not also be said that the phallus is not one sex, but sexuality in its entirety, which is to say, the sign of the large aggregate invested by the libido, whence the two sexes necessarily derive, both in their separation, two homosexual series of man and man, uh, woman and woman, and in their statistical relations within this aggregate. I've never seen such a silence when discussing sex. Um, I like how they make heavy use of rhetorical questions as if we just naturally know that it's true. Yeah, the rhetoric is interesting here, especially because, um, like they're saying, they don't, these aren't metaphors, right? So we get rhetorical questions that we're, like you're saying, that we're supposed to kind of, kind of take as is, and then we've got rhetoric of, um, right? And they're, they're not wrong in this, right? The, the judge administering justice, justice, the bourgeois fucking the proletariat, um, how Hitler arouses people sexually. I'm trying to, so this sort of answers the question from the previous section when they say, you know, they're explaining all these things, Hitler, nations, armies, they get people aroused and it doesn't need a, there's not a desexualizing extension that then somehow gets resexualized or something that's always sexual from the beginning. So I can follow that. But then when they say, so it's, it's a blockage that represses the flows into these particular cells. So they're saying it's the kind of repression that happens isn't uh, the kind of repression psychoanalysis usually describes. It's a repression of like, a, I don't, yeah, see, I'm losing it here. <laughs> I'm just trying to reestablish there because all this sort of intrinsically seems to make sense to me, but I don't know if I can reconstruct it. <laughs> I think you got it, though. It's not that it's not that there's a loss of sexuality. It's that sexuality becomes contained such as in a couple or a person or an object. So then this must connect to when they're saying below that. So when we love someone, the person to whom our love is dedicated, including parental persons, they're just a point of connection or disjunction in the flows whose libidinal tenor of an, a properly unconscious investment they translate. So I guess, is it what they're getting at that this, whatever the blockage is around which that kind of love concatenates or gathers, that the reason they want to talk about it in that way is because, as they say just below, that it can it can curiously change its function depending on whether it engages in this edible way or this other way, which isn't contained in the edible impasse. It's its own kind of flow.
Yeah, and I think this is further in their distinction of like familialism um, and, and psychoanalysis is classic use of familialism to like um, to condition desire, right? To restrict it um, as opposed to like desire or in, um, in this sense, right? Like desire without um, trying to strip away any of the sexuality um, as something that is uh, capable of a revolutionary investment, right? Because now we're looking at the reactionary and revolutionary investments again, which is like in that backdrop of the previous paragraph and the one before that, where these investments are present in the surroundings. But there where they talk about free energy, that's in contrast to to the Oedipal impasses not supplementary to them. Or what do you mean, Ayosha? Well, again, I'm just trying to rework the system in my head. So if they say, um, I'm just finding the sentence again, whether on the contrary, it condenses a free energy capable of fueling a revolutionary machine. The way I'm thinking of it, if libidinal investments come to be from these kind of molar aggregates, then that's kind of uh, a secondary process of desire and production where it's all happening at once in a sense, but like um, there's always desire and production happening. Right. So the way I would see it, like if you're trying, if their system is to work or if this way of thinking makes sense, then there's an edible impasse, but there has to be an outside to that impasse. Right. Cause otherwise you would say, well, how do you get out of it? And well, I think what they're saying, free energy that like some of the energy gets, you know, captured and put in these kind of cells, but there's always more, there's always an excess of it that could potentially become this revolutionary energy. That's how I'm reading it. Yes, that makes sense, but I'm not sure I can connect it to that sentence specifically in its context. Because to me, that actually just seemed um, to to address like what's the alternative to Oedipus, right? So, and not so much what happens simultaneously with Oedipus. You might be right. I mean, someone smarter than me can probably answer that. I'm just thinking in the sense of like everything we've read up until this point, you know, with the book of. Uh, you know, that it's never one or the other. And I don't think there's such a thing, unless you're talking about this sort of ideal image of what the schizophrenic experience could be, that that everyone would sort of be starting from a more or less edipalized point. But that wouldn't foreclose the possibility of engaging in that that free energy either. Because even people, people do do that even when it becomes reactionary. So it must exist or be in the mix regardless. That's kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah, actually, I think you're right. Like, I just read the whole sentence again. And yeah, and if you if we read the start with it, thus, no matter how well grounded the love blockage is, it curiously changes its function depending on whether it engages desire in the Oedipal impasses of the couple and the family in the service of the repressive machines, or whether, on the contrary, it condenses a free energy capable of fueling a revolutionary machine. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I like that too, because the love blockage isn't really, 
I don't think problematized there, right? But the the way desiring production is invested here, that seems to be the um where the focus is. And I say that because like even if you do have the the family here, right? The family's not there as like the the central familial, but as like um, as objects and um, desiring machines, right? That, that this desiring production is engaging, right? The connections and breaks are happening, the disjunctive distribution is happening, and the uh, the conjunctive um, uh, consummation is happening, but not necessarily through a familialism. That is um that point rather is about how this investment's occurring if the desire that's flowing through that um through the through that uh shall we say assemblage whether that gets invested um in a reactionary revolutionary sense is what they're looking at yeah so i guess my next question would be how the sentence and parenthesis relates to that if anyone has actually read for you um, like uh, here again, everything has already said by Fourier. When he shows the two contrary directions of captivation or the mechanization of passions of the passions. Um, I just read through what the wiki page had to say about him, and he seems like a really interesting character. But I, 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 I never heard of him before. I know that he's frequently cited when people talk about the history of Marxist feminism, but that's basically where it stops for me. What about this final comment with Marx and sex, the sexes? I mean, this seems woefully simplistic for our modern eyes, but I just want to sort of understand on, on their terms what they're trying to say here. Which comment about Marx where they're talking about Marx's... Um formula about man and woman or yeah just that last few sentences the relationship of man and woman uh that it's a measure of the relationship of sexuality in general and then this thing about the phallus is not one sex but sexuality in its entirety entirety that seems to be a jab directly at psychoanalysis to me yeah so i think well, this whole thing i think a lot of these rhetorical questions that they pose here just go on in the next paragraph. Maybe we should just read it and discuss this all together then. Otherwise, I would try to, like, I re can't really do it, but I think a, um, a productive approach would maybe to try to connect what they say about Marx to what came before via this quote of, um, but we always make love with worlds. And our love addresses itself to this libidinal property of our lover to either close himself off or open up to more spacious worlds, to masses and large aggregates. Because that's basically what they equate then with Marx's formula, right? Yeah, and once again, we see the molar um, showing up in that, which I think made sense too, because when I think about Marx, I... He does have this kind of like aggregate in the back of his mind, even when we're talking about labor value, right? There's no labor value. Well, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit here, but 
we're not going to have labor value and exchange value without having larger social aggregates of the of labor value, are we? So that is to say there's a molarity behind that. Yeah, okay. I think with that we can understand like the sentence that is the relationship between the two sexes, man and woman, is only the measure of the relationship of sexuality in general in so far as it invests large aggregates. But how do they come to in parenthesis men and men there? Is it just that these are like we can replace large aggregates for each other? That doesn't make like yes, but that doesn't seem very um pointed <laughs> for like a better word. I was curious about that too, because I so like the sentences that is the relationship between the two sexes, man and woman, is only the measure of the relationship of sexuality in general, insofar as it invests large aggregates, man and man. So like how I'm reading this is like when we talk about um the two sexes in general, right? When we talk about sexuality in this larger or I'm sorry, um when we talk about sexuality in this general sense, then we're talking about sexuality, um, or rather libidinal investments in larger aggregates. I think I'm reading man and man is just talking about groups and groups, but I'm, I'm a you little know, curious there too. You know, I wonder if this goes back to the third chapter and all the really dense anthropological stuff, but specifically, I wonder if this almost goes back to the whole flows of women thing. And this is why I said it's woefully simplistic. I mean, it's it, from there, from what they're saying, you know, that I see the large, insofar as it invests large aggregates, man and man, it's almost like talking about how the social reproduces itself in the first place, which is, uh, you know, take the CMC formula, <laughs> change it to MWM or something like that. That's how I'm seeing that of like, you know, it's not just a relationship between this man and this woman, but it is the way that man makes it possible to continue to be man man and man you know that that's how i'm seeing that now that there's a lot that isn't spoken about there but that's how i'm reading that that makes a lot of sense actually like it would be probably uh, beneficial if anyone here could actually speak to what marx talks about in the passage from which the quote is and also about um where the phrase specious determination of sexuality comes from. But uh, you basically convinced me with that. <laughs> I don't think that answers the question about the two series, man and man, woman and woman, but I wonder if we can just keep reading, like you said, to address that. I think so. The phallus, um, the, the thing of is the function of the phallus in sexuality for psychoanalysis and then how do they diverge here and I can't really speak on psychoanalysis so who can? <laughs> I mean in my impoverished understanding there's obviously the phallus and castration anxiety is a really big thing for Freud and I, I do know in Lacan the phallus comes to be that like what I think Deleuze and Guattari would call the despotic signifier that kind of orders all that 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 wor world representation 
that is incredibly simplistic. So I hope if someone knows Lacan better, you can tell me. But like, if, if what I gather, if they're saying it's not one sex, but sexuality in its entirety, that the phallus isn't just a stand-in for like a, the patriarch, even in the abstract. It's like, it resembles the whole system of relations of sexuality. Okay, I just remembered what comes up, and I think we should just read on, actually. Yes, the thing for me is it, it goes from, like, difference, right, man and woman, to, like, um, sameness, right, which we're later going to, like, talk about, like, in terms of, like, homosexual series of man and man, woman and woman. Well, I just wanted to say that, <laughs> perhaps... Um, does anyone have any final comments before we read on? I think it's worth noting uh, that one of the, one of my favorite things uh, that I've always enjoyed with the stance that woman doesn't exist as a concept. That uh, if we want to use Deleuzian terms, the the Muller concept of woman as a universal thing, as a sort of uh, I don't know. A platonic ideal is 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 a thing that doesn't exist. Uh, individual women exist absolutely. Individual men exist, uh, differing and separate. But there's no such thing as a woman at large. Uh, which is how I've always interpreted his statement that woman doesn't exist, which is one of his more uh, crazy ones. But I've always loved that sort of idea. I'm not sure about that. I'm actually thinking that that's the stance that they are arguing against kind of like but, but we should read on because they'll come to that works for me but Marx says something even more mysterious that the true difference is not the difference between the two sexes but the difference between the human sets and the so-called non-human sets it is clearly not a question of animals nor of animal sexuality something quite different is involved if sexuality is the unconscious investment of the large molar aggregates, it is because on its other side, sexuality is identical with the interplay of the molecular elements that constitute these aggregates under determinate conditions. The dwarfism of desire as a correlate to its gigantism. Sexuality and the desired machines are one and the same inasmuch as these machines are present and operating the social machines in their field, their formation, their functioning. Desired machines are the non-human sets, the molecular machinic elements, their arrangements and their syntheses, without which there would be neither a human set specifically determined in the large aggregates, nor a human sexuality capable of investing these aggregates. In a few sentences, Marx, who is nonetheless so miserly and reticent where sexuality is concerned, exploded something that will hold Freud and all of psychoanalysis forever captive, the anthropomorphic representation of sex. What we call anthropomorphic representation is just as much the idea that there are two sexes as the idea that there is only one. We know how Freudianism is permeated by this bizarre notion there is finally only one sex, the masculine, in relation to which the woman, the feminine, is defined as a lack, an absence. It could be thought at first that such a hypothesis founds the omnipotence of a male homosexuality. Yet this is not at all the case. What is founded here is rather the statistical aggregate 
of intersexual loves. For if the woman is defined as a lack in relation to the man, the man in his turn lacks what is lacking in the woman. Simply in another fashion, the idea of a single sex necessarily leads to the erection of a phallus as an object on high, which distributes lack as two non-superimposable sides and makes the two sexes communicate in a common absence, castration. Women, as psychoanalysts or psychoanalyzed, can then rejoice in showing man the way and in recuperating equality and difference. Whence the irresistibly comical nature of the formulas, according to which one gains access to desire through castration. But the idea that there are two senses, after all, is no better. This time, like Melanie Klein, one attempts to define the female sets by means of positive characteristics, even if they be terrifying. At least in this way, one avoids phallocentricism, if not anthropomorphism. But this time, far from founding the communication between the two sexes, one founds instead their separation into two homosexual series that remain statistical. And one does not by any means escape castration. It is simply that castration, instead of being the principle of sets conceived as the masculine sets, the great castrated soaring phallus, becomes the result of sets conceived as the feminine sets, the little hidden absorbed penis. We maintain, therefore, that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and moral representation of sexuality. Castration is the universal belief that brings together and disperses both men and women under the yoke of one and the same illusion of consciousness and makes them adore this yoke. Every attempt to determine the non-human nature of sets, for example, the great other in Lacan, while conserving myth and castration, is defeated from the start. And what does Jean-Francois Lyotard mean in his commentary, so profound, nevertheless, on Marx's text, when he sees the opening of the non-human as having to be, quote, the entry of the subject into desire through castration, end quote. Long live castration so that desire may be strong? Only fantasies are truly desired? What a perverse, human, all-too-human idea. An idea originating in bad conscience and not in the unconscious. Anthropomorphic molar representation culminates in the very thing that founds it, the ideology of lack. The molecular unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration, because partial objects lack nothing and form free multiplicities as such because the multiple breaks never cease producing flows instead of repressing them, cutting them at a single stroke, the only break capable of exhausting them, because the syntheses constitute local and non-specific connections, inclusive disjunctions, nomadic conjunctions, everywhere a microscopic transsexuality, resulting in the woman containing as many men as the man, and the man as many women, all capable of entering men with women, women with men, into relations of production of desire that overturn the statistical order of the sexes. Making love is not just becoming as one or even two, but becoming as a hundred thousand. Desiring machines, or the non-human sets, 
not one or even two sexes, but n sexes. Schizoanalysis is the variable analysis of the n sexes in a subject beyond the anthropomorphic representation that society imposes on the subject and with which it represents its own sexuality. The schizoanalytic slogan of the desiring revolution will be, first of all, to each its own sexes. And we should comment that Alyosha has uh, found in this uh, paragraph the, the way to date delusions. Forget about a heavy polar bear breaking the ice, right? Just read this chapter. Just read this section, rather. Should we should we try reconstructing from from the beginning here? So here, well, actually, we read two paragraphs, didn't we? So we can go even further. Hard to tell if it's two paragraphs or twelve. It's quite a long bit. <laughs> a hundred thousand, my friend. Well, so let's let's. Uh, I, it would be useful, I think, to to take a step back and talk about who they're discussing because they go through a handful of people here that not everyone has background on and I certainly didn't before reading this people like uh, Melanie Klein for example who uh, uh, sort of famously took on sort of the Freudian conception of Oedipus and ran it further and kind of stretched it out uh, very deep in psychoanalytic world um, I am very not familiar with Marx and his uh, stance on general sexuality I don't I mean I I, I don't remember how much I've read of Marx, but I'm not that versed. So that would be helpful. Um, and then on Lacan, we can spend some time and talk through that. I think it's worth going through that as well as Leotard. Um, so if anyone wants to jump into Marx first, I don't, and I've been, I spent some time searching. I couldn't find a lot on Marx and his, uh, the difference between two sexes, anything they're referencing here, they don't, I, I couldn't find it. So let me ask anyone else. So this comment, so I, I don't think that this, what they are quoting here from Marx is actually um, much of, of, of a de developed theory on Marx's part, but um, I'm pretty sure it's taken from... Um, the uh, Kritik der Hegelischen Rechtsphilosophie, um, Critique of, like, what's the English title of that? I have to look that up. Critique of Hegel's Critique philosophy of Hegel. right. Yeah, it's yes. just Critique of Hegel. And uh, by the way, it sounds much better in German. And I'm pretty sure that this, like, my, my suspicion, like, I haven't really read much of that. I have, would need to go back into that. But I'm pretty sure that this relates more to what a person is than to anything else. So it's been a long time since I've read that, and I scanned through this uh, leading up to this. I could not find anything directly related to sort of uh, sex, sexuality, man versus woman. Uh, the whole piece is essentially an attack on sort of Hegel's version of the subject and how the state operates. That I've been, as far as I can tell, again, didn't read the whole thing. It's not six pages. I'm not spending three weeks reading through that right now, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> couldn't well, find so, it. I mean, just, just looking at what they've written here. So they're talking about, it's not just about human sex, but the difference between human sex and this non-human sex. And further down in the paragraph, they say, desiring machines are the non-human sex, the molecular machinic elements, blah, 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 without which there would neither be a human sex 
nor human sexuality. So it seems like this is like what they're saying here with the, they say the dwarfism of desire correlate to its gigantism. Like the question we were having earlier of like, okay, is libidinal energy, is sexual energy purely a molar thing? Well, they're sort of saying, okay, it exists on these different levels, but that there, whereas psychoanalysis would only see sex in like actual physical sexual relations. I just see them as sort of repeating the point again, that there has to be, if desiring machines are the non-human sex, what they mean, I think, is there's a kind of, there's a coupling, like in the, in the various phases, the syntheses we talked about, one of them is, uh, sorry, connection, disjunction, con- uh, the third one, conjunction. Like there is a kind of coupling that is happening there in that process that is m- far more like elemental, I guess you could say, than the, the actual like, so-called penetrative act of sex like procreative sex or whatever so if you if you can't see that then sexuality is only going to be limited to an actual physical sexual relationship between two human beings and so that seems like fair enough to me without knowing all the marks that they're referencing um okay uh were you finished? Sorry. If yeah, I no, no, go for it. Yeah, so I found where this quote from Marx is actually from. And I so I only have the German text in front of me. Um, so specifically the quote about um, that it's the natural relation from person to person. Actually, it's not about personhood. Actually, the quote in German says... Uh, Mensch, so human, which is a distinction that might be relevant in this context, but okay. And it's um, from the 1844 manuscripts, actually. And um, I'll look up the English text and see what we can learn from that. Is it the section dealing with sovereignty? And now it's actually talking a lot about um, a marriage. And like, I, I need to read this before I can actually talk about it, I think. I just wanted to no, know. I, I think Alyosha's got it, though. I mean, this is what they're, what they're attributing to Mars is that there's, um, that there's, a, that he's, so it's kind of like um, it's that sexuality is not to be thought of through humanity, right? So like I, yesterday, I said I had trouble understanding where they were going with this because like um, because of how I understand Freud, but I I kind of get it now. What they're getting at is like if just like Alyosha said, if we think about sexuality through like a biological stance, right? So like through um, the act of bodies. Uh, male and female, right? And this is something that we, to give an example, this is something that we take to like our electronics, right? Male input, female um, receiver. Yeah. Um, if we take it to that, right? Like we're understanding things through, we're, we're understanding sexuality through um, a sort of biologicalism, right? But what they seem to be getting at is that is only possible, or rather that the, the, that human sexuality is made possible by these configurations of desiring machines and their abu- their ability for desire, which is not um, which is not 
configured by humanity itself, right? Or that is to say, desiring production is not necessarily human. Um, all that is made possible by desiring production. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me almost to be a similar move if you just think about, you know, the whole intervention of labor value in the in Marx's analysis of capital, like the thing that he saw as Ricardo and others like being so good at, but that they didn't develop far enough was understanding that you can't just look at something and say, oh, capital is this thing that exists in the world. And, you know, work, all that workers do is they help bring it into being, but they don't contribute anything to it. He had to, he was like, there's a, there's an abstract process, labor value that exists prior to these things and actually imbues everything with value in the first place. So I'm not the same, but just thinking of like, that seems to always be like the party trick Marx is pulling, right? So like, even in this case, even if they're reading it into Marx somewhat, that, uh, yeah, that there has to be, you know, it's, it's just restating, I think, some of what we've already been reading, that there has to be something prior to this very subject-oriented, familial idea of sexual relations. Uh, and if you, if you allow that, then it opens up to these other things. I wonder, though, if, if anyone has any <laughs> hints at the second paragraph. Because I find that one a bit harder to follow when they're they're saying there's this obsession basically with the one sex, which kind of defines woman by lack. Okay, that I can understand. But then they say, then they kind of go on to say this thing. This is kind of like what essentially makes psychoanalysis a discipline of like a single sex, completely defined around the phallus, I guess. So that's the change from, in my understanding, again, uh, that's the change essentially from Freud to Lacan uh, and this this sort of switch where uh, I believe uh, for Freud uh, you would take uh, male or female would take different edible positions based on their relationship with father and mother. Uh, if your edible position is opposing the father, you have taken the masculine. If it's opposing the mother, you've taken the feminine. It's kind of the uh, light version of that. Whereas with Lacan, uh, it's always the father, and you are ma masculine or feminine and determinant to your relation to the phallus. So that's the sort of shift and change. There's a lot more complexity to that, but that's a basic version of it. So when we talk about uh, that sort of change and that switch to where everything is about lack or if there's only one sex, that's the Lacan quote that uh, I think has been interpreted a lot of different ways, that there is no such thing as woman, that essentially... Uh, in a in a in our society, there is man first, and from there we actually separate out uh, things as according to not being that. And so women don't exist in a grand molar sense; they only exist in opposition or as a, a secondary sort of subject to the main masculine. Or you get the the Melanie, Melanie Klein kind of inverse of that, right? where instead of, we don't get the phallocentricism and perhaps not the anthropomorph anthropomorphism, but um, it looks like instead you get like the, the problem of understanding everything once again through like a limited lens. Well, and a, a lot of, um, a lot of the cons change over time is also moving away from uh, with, with Freud, everything very much had biological ties 
And Lacan's push almost completely was that everything's moving towards a, a deeply symbolic order of things. And so, well, with Freud, we really were talking about penises and phalluses. Uh, for Lacan, the phallus is actually a pure symbol. So there's a change there as well. Which is why it soars. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a big shift, and I mean, a lot of people have uh, people on on every side of the feminist issue have taken issue with Lacan. I'm not defending him at all with anything he's saying. Uh, the thing that I I always liked about that idea is the the idea of these all of these being social constructs. It was early in my readings of his, versus the sort of early psychoanalytic that very much uh, biology and psychoanalysis were tied together in Freud, whereas with Lacan, it's not. And the phallus is something completely separate. <laughs> not necessarily something I believe, I just I, I like the sentiment of that switch and a lot of how Lacan talked about that. Let's push this just a little bit further. What do you guys make of the following sentence? We maintain, therefore, that castration is the excuse me. We maintain, therefore, that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and molar re representation of sexuality. Yeah, I was trying. This is kind of what I was trying to reconstruct here because I'm struggling to follow as well. So they say, you know, psychoanalysis is this discipline that is essentially in Freudian psychoanalysis, in particular, is obsessed with that one sex. Woman is defined as lack, but then they say if the woman is defined as a lack in relation to the man, the man in his turn lacks what is lacking in the woman in another fashion. The idea of a single sex necessarily leads to the erection of a phallus, blah, blah, blah. So just, just with that one, I'm trying to follow that because it's through that that they say they share this experience of castration. Insofar as you're in that anthropomorphic molar representation of sexuality, you share that experience of castration. Can anyone help with well, the, the second turn here. So woman is defined as lack. Okay, I understand that. What do they mean by the man is lacking what is lacking in the woman? Well, if you define if you define um, women in relation to men, you can turn this relation around, right? You can... Basically, it's an equation, and it doesn't matter which side of the equation you put it first. That was how I read it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And because it gets to the problem of like, because that's where they're getting into this critique of like, so like they, they kind of moved, to, at least as I'm reading this, is like, okay, well, women is what man isn't. But then maybe women hold the key to like, or maybe being woman, so to speak, holds the key to to breaking all of this. But the problem is then you're in the, you're right back where you started right now. Man is what you're not. And so like, you know, like like Lou's saying, it's it, it doesn't solve anything, right? It's kind of like um, it's another form of a cell. Or is it is is what they mean that because if the, if the woman is defined as a lacking man, the man in his turn lacks what is lacking in the woman. What the woman is lacking in the castration framework is the phallus, right? But is it is it that the it's, if the man can't provide that, then they are also essentially lacking. Phallus. Is that is that what it would be? I mean, there's probably probably some technicality how um, the fear of concentration factors into that in contrast to the like I I don't know um, like we desperately need some feminist readings here because this is <laughs> but anyway I'm just trying to understand their what they're saying. Actually, I think um, this concept of and sexes 
is actually exactly where um what's her name um the one who wrote a feminist introduction to Lacan Elizabeth Gross um she starts there I think in her theory of gender which has been critiqued as well I think but it's it's a start and all of this gets really complicated to read from uh, nosubject.com, which is fantastic, sort of Lacanian dictionary website. Uh, where for Freud, the castrated one is the woman. For Lacan, it is the man who is castrated, insofar as he is completely subjected to the signifier, which says no to complete satisfaction. The boy is totally subjected to the law, and thus to symbolic castration. It is only at the imaginary level that he appears not to be castrated in his possession of a penis. The only exception to this rule is that all men are castrated, is that the father is the father of the primal horde. In its connection with the incest taboo, the effect of castration is to divide women into those who are accessible and those who are not, uh, as a definition of how men have to deal with all women, accessible or not, and therefore they're castrated. So it's a, this is not an easy section, is a short, short answer there. Right, if we go back to like the, right, so the first paralogism is when lack is, um, taken as absence, right? When we understand lack, like in this manner, where it's not having a penis or, or not having, um, I suppose in this case it would be, yeah, then they make the move to like the clitoris, right? And right, there's the sense that you're missing something and that it's, you know, that that kind of comes to, I think, like define you in that way, right? But the first um, syllogism is not lack in that manner. It's, you know, a kind of deprivation. But this is all, right, now that we're getting into the syllogism, that's possible because we're not talking about it in like a, a anthropomorphic or like um, biocentric manner. And so in that way, right, like the, the distinction between the penis and the clitoris um, as exclusively um, in this sense, right, a lack of the, ma um, the male or a lack of the female uh, kind of falls away. Right, it becomes kind of artificial or a representation of a society's sexuality, as they, they so poignantly put it later on. Okay, I'm a bit lost where we actually are because chat and voice chat are a bit divergent, I think. Let, let me go back because I think the, the sentence I want to spend time on in this larger section, and there's a lot around it, is the sentence we maintain, because again, I think this is what they're trying to say in these paragraphs. We maintain, therefore, that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and molar representation of sexuality. Castration is the universal belief that brings together and disperses both men and women under the yoke of one and the same illusion of consciousness and makes them adore this yoke. Feel free to explain any of that, but that feels like they're literally saying this is this is our point. We maintain this, and I don't understand at all what the fuck they're talking about. Castration by univocalizers. How is castration? It's page 295, dead in the middle. Um, castration is the basis for molar representation of sexuality. How? I mean, I guess if you think about what they were saying before about the love, the blockage, right? So they're saying there, what, there's this non-human experience of sex that has to meet blockages in order to like 
concatenate around something like a person that you experience and feel that you love and are attracted to. So, and in that section, they say, what is it? They think they call them cells. Uh, on the, it is through a restriction, a blockage, and a reduction that the libido is made to repress its flows in order to contain them in the narrow cells of the type couple, family, person, objects. That was back on 293. So, and they say the libido does not come to consciousness except in relation to a given body, a given person that it takes as its object. So I wonder if there that's like, to, in order to have that blockage, there is a kind of, uh, that's like where the lack begins to be distributed, right? Because it has to sort of create, um, I'm losing my words, but that, that's where I'm headed in my mind. So uh, another way, if we want to maybe transpose a little bit, one of the things we know is that the molar representations of things tends towards the paranoiac, while the molecular tends towards the schizo. Uh, Another way we might say this then is that the castration is the basis for the uh, the molar representation sexuality or the paranoiac's uh, dealings with sexuality, uh, which would follow given that castration tends to be that thing that causes neuroses and paranoia in, on that direction, at least in the sort of classic psychoanalytic framework. At the risk of over oversimplifying, I, I think of that sentence basically as saying like, we understand sexuality through whether or not something has a penis. Yeah, or I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, um, what's like that's something maybe Brooks can talk about. Like, um, I understand that the phallus is central in creating a unified subject, right? And that's basically what they are breaking open here, right? So, sexuality doesn't happen on the level of a unified subject. But it's on the molecular level where we have these disparate um, desiring machines, which is basically what they are getting at here with the N sexes, right? It's not one unified sex, one unified gender, but it's all these desiring machines that connect. And in that way, it's not castration, is it? Because the, the desiring machines don't lend themselves to this problem. And... To, to argue otherwise, right, is the first paralogism. So here's a question. What if the line, uh, we maintain, therefore, that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and molar representation of sexuality is actually a critique? Uh, they go on to basically mock the great other in Lacan and others uh, for every attempt to determine the non-human nature of sex. And instead they go back, maybe they're pushing back towards the idea of actually there is no such thing as a non-human nature of sex, given that it really operates in a different place, that desiring machines and things operate at the molecular. And when we start talking about the molar representation of sexuality, it becomes almost meaningless. Because again, remember, desire machines don't operate at the molar level. That's social machines, uh, technical machines, but not desire machines. Desire machines only operate at the molecular. I think you're half right, because. but the important thing with that sentence is what's after the, the M-bar. Because they say every attempt to determine the non-human nature of sex while conserving the myth of castration myth and castration is defeated from the start because i think quite plainly they say in the previous paragraph desire machines are the non-human sex and that it's i do think it's important for them that that, that does exist but it's more this is a it's a critique insofar as i think everything else they talk about with oedipus because they say well oedipus is real this is what oedipus is but 
it, the whole the whole book is clearly a critique of that. They're just saying, insofar as you you start you begin from these molar aggregates, you're already operating in this world where these things become real to people and they experience them in this way. But well, that, essentially, it, yeah. So so then the they go on to say anthropomorphic molar representation culminates in the very thing that founds it, uh, the ideal ideology of lack, the castration. The molecular unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration because partial objects lack nothing and form free multiplicities as such. They are the desiring machines. They are the multiplicities of desiring machines that operate at the molecular level. Because the multiple breaks never cease producing flows instead of repressing them, again, what happens at the molecular, cutting them at a single stroke. The only break capable of exhausting them, because the syntheses con constitute local and nonspecific connections, inclusive disjunctions, nomadic conjunctions, Functions, everywhere a microscopic transsexuality resulting in the woman containing as many men as the man and as many men as many women and the man as many women all capable of entering into relations of production of desire that overturn the statistical order of the sexes uh, their argument kind of coming back to the idea that uh, at the molar level castration seem, is the story that's the story we tell ourselves that it, that's it's the discourse and the representation yes yeah, it's the disc. It's the setup. This is the the world and how it's run. But the reality is, uh, sexuality, the non-human aspect of sexuality, which absolutely the big other is uh, is intended to be some kind of transference of sexuality into the non-human. In Lacan, uh, I would say they're saying that there's no such thing as a non-human version of sexuality, that there's only the story we tell. And in reality, sexuality operates only at the molecular. And at the molecular, we are many and one at the same time. The only thing no, I disagree with that because I think they're I think they're saying that is that there is such a thing as the non-human nature of sexuality and it is that molecular conscious experience that mm -hmm. is that. So if if we if we want to like put it into a broader argument. No, you're right. Sorry, real quick, Roger. Uh, they literally have a line that says desiring machines or the non-human sex. Yeah. So yeah. So the desiring machines are the non-human sexuality. I think I was using the term wrong. Yeah. That's all. I'm a bit wary of the opposition you made between the molar and the molecular. Like in the way you made it, it sounded a bit like you had a, a basic superstructure um, relationship between them, and that doesn't really work. Like we can't treat the uh, molar as ideology and uh, and and uh, put it in opposition to a reality, right? Like the... I, I think I was trying to say more that the molar and the social machines and the, the grand narrative that the social machines create uh, in relation to the desiring machines is, is where the separation is. And that the social machines, again, I'm just trying to interpret what I'm trying to gain out of this. Um, so it's fair. I'm not, maybe I'm off. Hmm. I just I just joined the conversation, but to to bring it to a more general argument of uh, Deleuze and Guattari compared to the others, uh, desire is positive instead of negative. So basically, you know, the old critique of the the molar aspect is to set the molar as the crystallization of the whole ideology of the lack. So basically, what they're trying to say is that. 
desire and sexuality are productive. So basically, you're producing new senses, you're producing um, molecular multiplicities as you're having sex, you know, you're not referring to the molar level, you know, you're not saying, oh, I'm, I'm having or not having sex with this woman or with this man. And therefore, you know, it's a lack, it's, it's never like that in reality. But if we, um, if we follow the way that institution and the way that the society as a whole is treating sex, it's treating it through castration. So basically, if we're starting from a man perspective, like an heterosexual male perspective, we're going to see it through a lack and castration. And if we try to do the alternative, starting from the woman or the trans or the queer, we're just going to end up in castration as well if we don't get rid of this negative aspect of sex. So that's what they're saying any attempt would like still end up at the same place so what we need to do is to go back at the molecular at the empirical state of sex and try to produce it into a different manner so basically we could challenge the 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 molar through a positive perspective of sexuality sorry long rant well, it's also worth noting the thing that they've gone over a few times now is that uh, we've got the syntheses as a basic way of how things operate. Uh, and the syntheses at the molecular level are at the desiring machine level are used correctly. But at the molecular at the molar level, they're fucked up. They, they, they're broken, they are used improperly. And I think a lot of that is what they're talking about here when they talk about the the syntheses being utilized to proffer castration and you know the two sides of sex and all of that at the molar level. Whereas at the molecular, it's a very different discussion in the proper use of the syntheses. And that's, you know, another, another point, I don't know if you treated it, but the anthropomorphic aspect of it, you know, we found castration only within um, uh, human sexuality. We, we produce castration into um, the animals, you know, the, the, the herd animals that like we're, we're raising and everything. But uh, we would never say, oh, you know, this raccoon is being castrated. You know, we would never say that. And I don't think the raccoons would represent themselves as being castrated. So it's really something linked to human sexuality. But I think it's linked to capitalism also and, you know, property and acquisition. And that's something, you know, maybe it's going to come uh, further during, uh, in the text, but I think it's really fundamental. Well, I, I want to bring up also, um, I'm going to read a bit from Holland uh, on this because I think it will help. I've been reading it in the background as we've been talking, and I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through. It's going to be two or three paragraphs. I apologize in advance. Stop me at any point because we will want to discuss this. If schizoanalysis had a story to tell about patriarchy, it would be about the becoming psychological of gender oppression. Whatever the forms of patriarchy instituted in earlier social formations based on codes and overcodes, capitalism has no overarching code by means of which it could impose gender hierarchy on society as a whole. Indeed, capital treats individuals completely indiscriminately as interchangeable and exchangeable quantities of abstract labor. Only subsequent to axiomatization are they endowed with specific skills or tastes to suit them for this branch of production or this field of consumption. So in principle, at least, gender plays little part in the construction of social identity under capital. The important exception is the non-remuneration of women's reproductive labor, which is one notable feature of the segregation of human reproduction from social reproduction under capitalism that Deleuze and Guattari do not discuss. 
Capitalism reproduces patriarchy psychologically by producing hierarchically gendered subjects according to specific mechanisms operating in the nuclear family. Mechanisms that, like the Oedipus complex itself, involve the illegitimate use of the syntheses of connection, disjunction, and conjunction. Three polar oppositions form the matrix of nuclear subjectivity, male versus female, object choice v. identification, and heterosexual versus homosexual. When treated as exclusive disjunctions, these polarities delineate the standardized molar forms of subjectivity that capture and distort desiring production. Desiring production itself, of course, treats these oppositions as endpoints of a continuum along which desire travels freely, with the result being that sex-gender identity is actually a polyvalent multiplicity. Molar representation, by contrast, imposes an exclusive disjunction. The subject must assume its sex by choosing male or female for identification, either male or female for its object choice, and thus either heterosexuality or homosexuality as its sexual orientation. What is more, with the migration of despotism and paranoia from society at large into the heart of the nuclear family, these intimate patterns of identification, object choice, and sexual orientation inevitably carry with them investments in either domineering mastery or abject slavery. For as we have seen, the only two positions available in the restricted nuclear family when it alone carries the full weight of the incest taboo are those of the castrating despotic father and the tabooed and subjugated mother. The outlines of patriarchal subjectivity are laid very clear. It's uh, page 116 of, uh, of Holland's introduction to uh, uh, Antioedipus. I would simply say, uh, but even then a, matriarch a matriarchal society would carry like a similar problem. Brooks, if you're speaking, I cannot hear you. Sorry, yeah. I, I should have muted. I'm continuing to read Holland. It's basically he's he's they're doing a deep dive into how uh, the uh, the disjunctions and the syntheses operate at the molar versus molecular, and that's kind of the thing we need to I think keep keeping in mind when we discuss how these operate um, when we're talking about the sort of bouncing back and forth between the two poles versus being stuck on one of the two as a binary. We're talking about molecular versus molar. Uh, when we talk about castration and how uh, women operate and how women exist, uh, they exist as uh, in the molar in opposition to the man. It's the, the binary choice. It's the broken version of the syntheses. Uh, it's a bipolarity, opposition to man, based on illegitimate use of the syntheses of connection, registration, and consummation. By contrast, legitimate uses of the syntheses, local part object rather than global whole person, inclusive rather than exclusive, nomadic rather than segregative, produce subjects that are fluid, ambivalent, polyvalent, open to change, that are continually being made, unmade, and remade. Uh, they then go in actually to uh, talk about how Judith Butler uh, uh, dealt with Nietzsche and Foucault. It's a lot to read through here, but uh, I'll copy. I'd be interested to hear that. Maybe if we post the 
section. Yeah, I'll, I'll copy it in. But uh, essentially, that's Holland's take on the entire thing is that they're they're here talking less directly about uh, sexuality as a direct thing or feminist or any sort of thought like that, but about how identity is effectively formed under capital and how identity is formed within the nuclear family at the molar level through the uh, improper use of the syntheses and how it forces people into effectively dealing with uh, a by uh, choice. Uh, I've got the, I'm going to be the father or I'm the beaten wife. Whereas the reality is on the schizo side is moving around and sort of being where you are as a partial object rather than a whole person. And that whole person is the challenge, which I kind of like as a sentence, although I'm going to continue reading. I'm going to copy stuff into the chat. Someone else can start talking. The only thing I would take issue with that quote was the beginning part where the Holland talks about well, capitalism is actually indiscriminate and it's only after axiomatization that these things happen, which that might be a secondary conversation to have. I mean, it, it strikes me like a lot of very painful and trip, uh, sort of tedious conversations with Orthodox Marxists about race where you're sort of like, like, oh, you know, this comes, you know, in principle, capital doesn't distinguish between these things. It's only after that these things are introduced as ideology. And it's sort of like, I don't think, I think there's been a lot of work by really great people to show that it's like it's always been, you know, the flows of whether you say races or women or whatever it is, has always been there, like sort of in the founding elements of capitalism. But I don't know if that necessarily takes apart everything that he's saying. It's just, I just am suspicious of those discourses. But um, I was just saying in chat to Jack as well, I wonder if it might help us because Jack had a little a typo in chat, but I thought it might, it actually kind of worked, where he said uh, he called them moral investments instead of molar. And I said, well, I think that actually kind of helps with the little problem we were having before in the language, because I think kind of what you were getting at, Brooks, is what's illegitimate, not just in their actual use, but like the way we talk about it, is the moral discourse that surrounds these molar aggregates. You know, so I, I think what they're saying, just to connect to I think what Roger and other people were saying before, is that it's not just that the molar aggregates are BS. I think they are saying that the molar aggregates do kind of actually proceed in this way. But it's sort of the you know when you begin from that point and you and you build in this stupid example I'm giving you know when you build a whole moral discourse around that level and you go no deeper to the molecular level you're kind of already lost and I just I, I don't know if, if if it helps anyone to think of it that way yeah yeah totally and you know if we can add to this that you know the the molar is the is the the end of the road also you know. When you are like a man heterosexual, you're already there. You don't move. You're not into becomings. And molecular's uh, at the molecular level, level this there. This is where they are the becomings. So basically, it's it's a discourse. It's a moral, but it's also uh, I don't know how we can say this into a different way, but like the end of the road. This is this is where you should be and how things should be. So there's no possible becoming after that if you're heterosexual male you're there you don't you don't move elsewhere if you're queer for example you're still in the molecular and you can become something else women as even in the molar approach women always have this possibility of shifting where men is way more difficult I really like uh, I'm gonna find a way for me to sort of post this entire thing in the chat without it taking up it's so stupid the way discord works but i want to just read a few sentences um, about their sort of reading of the lose through butler by so ascribing a tendentially 
constitutive yet potentially subversive role to repetition, Butler deftly avoids the conundrum of determinism versus free will and carves out a place for agency in gender theory, with agency now understood in terms of degrees of variation and repetition. Agency is limited, but also made possible. Agency and repetition for Butler is crucially ambivalent, then, in much the same way that the socius and body without organs are under capitalism, according to Deleuze and Guattari. Capitalist axiomatization produces both deterritorialization and reterritorialization, both decoding and recoding, both potential for freedom through differentiation and diversification, and limitations on that potential sponsored by privatized surplus appropriation in the capitalist market and privatized reproduction in the patriarchal nuclear family. The body without organs under capitalism, as we have seen, registers desire both to free from it determination and propel it into new and in, in different trajectories and to capture it in representations that support existing social power structures. In this connection, schizoanalysis may adduce historical and materialist contexts for the contemporary gender trouble that Butler analyzes with such acuity. So I, it seems to be, it felt like that was more of a direct answer to what Alyosha was talking about, which I totally agree with the idea that capital doesn't care about those things. They're saying almost that actually, no, that literally capital is about decoding and recoding and all of these things. But it also comes with the second thing. And that second thing is that socius, the body without organs, that is pulling in and having this sort of, uh, this this power that registers desires that both free people and collapse them into very specific subjects at the same time. So so not, just, not just pure capital. Just to note that um, the Marx quote from which they start um, is basically from a section where he talks about the relationship um, between marriage and private property, and where he like he basically says that uh, marriage is a form of private property. Um, I think we actually should read that at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's that's you know uh, it points back to what I was saying earlier. It's a uh, it, it becomes molar because it responds to a form of I'm, I'm always writing this at the same time of dwelling the, the way we dwell in society and because you know the houses are made for wife and men and you know the way the cars are made you know two places you know and all of this responds to the idea of the couple so the the molar heterosexual couple uh, places itself in a specific manner in society if we would uh, choose for a different type of sexuality let's say like bi or pansexual we would it's it's possible now because it would drive us even into a more neoliberal way of dwelling and property because the exchange would be something contractual and temporary and the way we would dwell we would dwell individually instead of like living communally with uh, the people that we have taken property over through marriage Holland has a quote a little bit later from the book that he uses here to discuss uh, uh, gay liberation. And the quote is, there's, for example, no gay liberation movement is possible as long as homosexuality is caught up in a relation of exclusive disjunction with heterosexuality, a relation that ascribes them both to a common Oedipal and castrating stock, charged with ensuring only their differentiation in two non-communicating series, instead of bringing to light their reciprocal inclusion and their trans 
transverse communication in the decoded flows of desire, including disjunctions, local connections, and nomadic conjunctions. Holland then goes on to say, in the same way, women's liberation is not possible as long as the concept of woman itself is not disseminated in the polyvalent multiplicity of different roles and orientations, but remains locked in a bipolar opposition to man based on illegitimate use of the synthesis of connection. So essentially in the molar, effectively, the story is always placing us uh, as part of the break of that process. Uh, up against what is essentially the the giant story of the body without organs. I'm not saying necessarily ideology, but in this case, the man or the heterosexual white man, if we want to say that, and that liberation isn't possible as long as the descriptions or the way that we think of these things are in uh, contrast to that as being the dominant form instead of in reality understanding that uh, there's there's a million of these things in direction and that we're all partial objects uh, instead of uh, whole humans. And no, and, and by that, like the white man doesn't fit the molar as well because the white man, you know, like me, I'm a white man. I'm, uh, I don't fit the molar because I'm still partial. The molar is really something that is like in the diagram, in the in the in the discursive uh, layer of the assemblage but not into the bodies directly by the way did we finish the section was that the end of it that is the end of it isn't it i mean I'm i just want to quote that uh, series of rhetorical questions here um where is it which is another great summary of this section uh long live castration so that desire may be strong only fantasies are truly desired what a perverse human all too human idea that's just a great callback to, I mean, previous sections, but also everything we're talking about here. It's a, it is a long live castration so that desire may be strong. Again, and they talk about this is that thing that happens at the molar level, the, the broken disjunction. It's a really fascinating way to take about it. Mm -hmm. We were just debating in chat there about whether the molar, did you want to explain what you meant, Jack? And my only point is that, so the sentence we took as the point of departure, we maintain, therefore, that castration is the basis for the anthropomorphic and molar representation of society. Like, I don't think they're talking about the molar per se. They're talking about the molar representation there. So my point is that the molar, as I'm reading that, doesn't seem in and of itself problematized, but the molar representation is anthropomorphic, which relies on the, the notion of castration. This premise is what they're critiquing because that that seems to be the point of departure for psychoanalysis, and that leads to a lot of social problems at the molar level. I guess the question is maybe for people who've read further. To me, it almost feels like, well, A, is there any other way of talking about the molar because of what it is that's why i pointed to that thing about consciousness they specifically say it's a it's an ex something that is experienced in consciousness the yoke but also you know do they discuss so what would a revolutionary investment look like on the molar level or or is it something that if, if it's supposed to be coming from that free energy that is inherently part of the kind of molecular level then isn't it something else entirely i mean it might traverse the molar in the way it traverses, I don't know, the body without organs or something. But like, 
I, I read all of this as an implicit critique of the molar. That's, and that's kind of what I'm questioning because as I understand, like, so as I'm thinking about, it, we're talking about social machines and desiring machines again, where social machines take their um, their constitution from a series of desiring machines, yeah? And in that way, as desiring machines are engaging in their syntheses, so too are social machines at the molar level engaging in syntheses. But where I see them getting, um, looking at the problem here is not in those, those connections per se. I see them looking at the problem at with a molar representation, with something like Oedipus circulating in these syntheses at the social machinic level, thereby you have, um, at least here, thereby you have the problem of castration, which traps sexuality into the cell of this, um, the, 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 this castrated form of sexuality, which keeps us from thinking about desiring production um, without putting it into the a basically... Um, a framework of whether or not one uh, of uh, of people and more directly of whether or not um, the presence of a phallus is there. To, to demonstrate, they go on to say anthropomorphic molar representation culminates in the very thing that founds it, the ideology of the lack. The molecular unconscious, on the contrary, knows nothing of castration because partial objects lack nothing from free multiplicities of such. So like, as I see it, like, with social machines getting caught up in this um, representation, that seems to me to have, I think part of the trouble there is that that, that can enter the molar level. But well, my that's question my is, thought. is there anything other than anthropomorphic molar representation? Is there another kind of representation? Because I think it would just be representation, it's writ large. And you can have, you can have yeah, but Sorry, you, can have molecular, you can have molecular representations as well. You know, different types of desire express into an identity or, you know, a discourse or a text. So that's what I'm going to It would do it through a way, the molecular would effectively do it in a way that's multi, uh, multi-stage, polyvocal, partial object-based, rep, partial reps, basically, partial representation rather than sort of whole cloth ones that are happening on the molar level. Well, that's my question. So do they actually, because I'm, I'm happy to be corrected, I just, do they actually use... The word, the language of representation to discuss that because I thought that based on everything they, I, I don't think they can, do. Can I say something on this? Please. Just one second. I've been on Google trying to look for representation molar or molar uh, molar representation, and there's not a lot. I think we're touching a problem that has hasn't been explored. I think it's just a way of formulating it that is, you know, for us we we've read enough that it becomes really problematic. But uh, nobody has really taken this uh, concept as it is, like the, not the molar, but the molar representation as one concept. Um, it's not being treated that much. So, well, so I, I just want to step in. Maybe because most people don't talk about molar representations, which is a term that's not super used here, but instead molar investments, which I think is the term that most people have begun to use around this and with uh, the same uh, otherwise, because we're talking about actually, ultimately, we're talking about the investments of desire, and that's not so much representations, but instead, the representations and how they are invested. My, my only nitpick here is I'm, and I could be wrong and dying on this hill, but I'm saying, to me, molecular representation sounds like an oxymoron. And what we're describing to me almost sounds like an event, more so than a representation, because if it was to really 
chase those revolutionary that revolutionary investment or direction <laughs> machines or whatever. I don't like to me. It seems like from what everything we've read previously, they there was the whole beginning of the book where they talked about the idea of non-signification and non-representative desire. That is like the nature of molecular desiring machines, right? So, what would it mean to represent that? I think the whole point is to escape. You know, I, maybe it's too mystical, but like to at least always be striving to escape representing that at all, and more to sort of bring it into these moments where it, it, you know the, all those molecular flows sort of meet around a particular thing and create something. So again, going back to their original purpose, it's about an act of creation versus an act of signification of or of like a despotic signifier representing something else. I know in a common sense way we can say, yeah, in this way you can channel this molecular thing and represent it in this way. And that's might be how I kind of like live my life on a daily basis. But just in terms of what they're saying, I always saw it as well, let me try to say it back. Let me try to say it back so I can under, make sure I understand what you're saying because I don't think I disagree and my brain's slowly taking it in. Um, that at the molecular level desire and all of that is created, but there's no representation. That desire is uh, pure, if we want to say that. But at the point where it becomes part of the social machines, what the social machines shit out is basically that's where representation happens. Well, right, and I guess just just at, the, just at the level of communication also. I'm just going to ask you a question because I, I fundamentally agree with you, and this is one of my big criticisms towards the queer movement. But as the queer movement develops new kinds of sexuality, you know, not the movement, but like people, like, you know, they, they're just having their sexuality, but it's being aggregated into discourse by a movement, and it becomes movement as it is represented. There's certain identity that arise from those practices. So it, it's, it, it may seem counter-instinctual for us, but to become a war machine, the molecular needs to start to be represented into some way. So it would still make sense, you know? It's like, it's like uh, taking a snapshot of a becoming, but the snapshot is still mobile. That kind of makes sense to me, but I, I guess I'm just the the nitpick is just yeah. So if if it's a sort of a means to an end, I'm just I guess I'm saying in and of itself like the reason I said an event versus a representation is you could you could kind of critique that you know because I've been in a lot of queer spaces like that where you can look at it and you can be like well this is really just this feels like a you know it feels like a heterosexual space because people are just trying to recreate sort of identities that will be acceptable to society or they've been captured in some way, but like if you think about spaces that that are created that try to escape the possibility of that kind of categorization, whether that's through like actually hypersexual spaces like play parties or, you know, drag shows or ball, the ball culture or, you know, spaces where it's not about individuals in, even in specific identities, but a kind of endless play of, of forms, then, you know, that, that makes sense to me. And yes, insofar as we are like, corporeal beings yes there's like a way that representation comes into that i'm just saying on a conceptual level and it's a question whether or not it we should conceive of it as this is molecular representation or just this is the point at which a molar representation sort of is like it, it takes form in this molecular flow you know because it just it just molecular representation sounds like and I could be wrong. That's just my instinct. I, I think you're spot on. I, I just copied text from 
Holland. Um, within Psyche, schizophrenia and paranoia designate two forms of libidinal investment or processing on the body without organs. One is polyvocal, free from coding, overcoding, and recoding. The other coded and therefore univocal. In both cases, desire registers in the psyche, but in one case, the moment of registration is simply an occasion to set desire in motion again to make other connections and other trajectories, whereas in the other, it serves to fix desire and determinate, usually socially sanctioned, representations that hence forth govern which connections will and will not be made. This is, I think, what you're talking about, that at the molecular form, the there is no direct investment representation. Uh, no, no, Alyosha? Sorry, sorry, yeah. Sorry. Um, I'm still confused how we actually got to talk about molar uh, representation. And my question basically would be if we, if we posit that there's um, um, a basic difference in the relationship to representation between mo molecular and molar, um, can we actually define a border between, like a limit between molecular and molar? I was under the impression that this is much more of a um, perspective thing than an absolute difference in size or scale. I don't think it's about scale, It's, but I think it's what you said. It's not about, it's just, yeah, what, how do you understand it at a particular level? Of different, or if it's if they're both sides of like similar things, just different regimes of perception. It's, it's the regimes that. comment. It's um, when when partial objects, very specific desiring machines, are firing off. There isn't necessarily representation happening there. They're all attached to partial objects or are partial objects. At some point, we and I say we, uh, actually we as a good use of this. We as people, we as a society, we as a group, we as a, a podcast reading nightmare fest, whatever we are, we decide at some point that we we have to have this discussion and assign signs to things. And in order to do that, uh, we do it in a way that is sort of spread across the body without organs so we can have discussions and we create singular humans. I'm Brooks, we've also got Alyosha, we've got Lou, we've got these other people. The clear demarcation is when we move from partial object to whole. That's to me. That's when that. That's the line. That in between there. There's. There's. Um, is there something? Does that make? Is that? Does that make sense, Lou? That's where I see the the line when we're talking about partial objects versus whole. Uh, that's the line I see between the two. Yeah, but but what restricts me from? cutting up a partial object into more partial objects, making it basically a global object. Wouldn't that be just from misunderstanding it or the, yeah, the illegitimate of the synthesis? Maybe I'm just too out of the discussion right now. Sorry. No, I'm, I'm not saying you might have a point. I'm just trying to understand. Like, I don't think of it as a clear limit. It's more like I'm thinking of the Bergson as well of like, you know, uh, qualitative and quantitative multiplicities, you know, like it's not a question of pure limits there either, but it's sort of like at different levels of what you're talking about. You know, it doesn't make sense to talk about 
this thing in this way. That that's where I'm coming from. Like as insofar as we're talking about representation, we're kind of always already talking about that molar level of investment. And so to in order to not do what they're warning against, which is try to get outside of it, but then still end up with these molar ways of representing things like the great other, but then you still have castration. I'm saying, should we not be cautious about the whole molecular representation thing so that we, we can always remember that molecular as a thing that, you know, it, it's of its nature to be non-representative and non-representable, you know, which th- that to me intersects with the mystical dimension of things and why it would be more about thinking about event spaces and, you know, ways that these things come into creation rather than how do we, because language is that, you know, it's always going to be in perfect way. You know, we might feel we have to represent it, but whether it is representative is another thing, I think. But anyway. So see what we're having right now in social sciences is a big, uh, <laughs> it's a big subject of discussion because when you're more on the delusion side and you end up like for me, I'm working on visibility. So basically like, I enter a space of identity stuff, you know, it's cultural studies, you know, um, uh, the, the visibility uh, academic movement is like reaching out to the queer movement and all of this, and they treat everything in identity. So it's really difficult to actually try to move past that and have a different discourse. And, uh, but yes, that's, that's always where the, the crux of the question uh, is, you know, do we like talk of flux and talks of, talk of intensities or go with identities. Well, and I actually, now that Lewis said this, I've put a bug in my brain. So if, I'm gonna go back on something I said earlier. Oh God, I hate when I do this. Um, okay, so if we're talking about partial objects versus whole objects, where representation can happen versus where it can't, the second step, the second of the third syntheses is that of recording which is about recording signs, it's about recording objects, it's about recording representation. So representation happens at this level, which means I could theoretically break it down even further. And so is this a meta of a meta of a meta, I never stop thing is gonna happen to me if I keep diving down? Recording of a distribution of libidinal energy, right? Recording of images of satisfaction. But but doesn't recording, recording creates surfaces, right? Recording isn't about signification. It's not about creating this signifier now, this despotic signifier that points to these things. And this, this is all a chain of. Correct. This is, this is where the body without organs comes from effectively is our recording of these things. And the, the second step of the synthesis of recording is where the bot, the BWO comes from. That's a, where it's created. If we want to talk about it, like it's the loom and the body without organs is being woven as it goes. But that's, it's this, that, that second one is incredibly important because it's literally the crux of difference and repetition sort of put into psychic form, psyche form. But, so, but wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be a non-representative surface though? Isn't that the point of what they're saying that recording in a way that it doesn't, it's not creating representations that fit into a symbolic order. It creates a surface, a body, which puts machines into connection. That's all pre-representation in my mind. So in your understanding, representation would only enter 
after like representation isn't even in in the book actually right like even the third synthesis and the creation of um, subjectivity is before representation i do i do think they talk about it i'll try and find some quotes anyway because it seems like we're getting stuck on this a bunch but i think but to, it's to whenever re- they talk about sorry yeah no no go ahead sorry i, I was just going to say whenever they talk about the psychoanalytic unconscious unconscious at that level at what at the point of being edipalized you are talking about representations but the machinic unconscious the auto production of the real has nothing to do with representation so that's why i'm saying what does it mean when we put that word in conjunction with that space of whatever we're talking about i like it can only become because of yes the way we experience consciousness and the way we have to talk about things it's a challenge, but I don't think it means it's one you have to not take on or, or give up on either. Like that to me is the, the point of the mystic, mystic side of these things of how you actually incarnate them in art and praxis and in religion or whatever it is that it's, it's a challenge, but it's not impossible to do. And it's experiential and creative rather than representative and ideological is what I'm saying. Go back to my, 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 my jump in. One second, my comment was exactly the same as your first part, but it's a criticism of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis says, you know, there's the category and then it reads uh, subjective experiences as an expression of this universal. So when they say that the molar representation, it's the symbolic representation in psychoanalysis. So that's that's the whole criticism of that. We're going to see it like at page 300 and 301 a little bit later on. Go back really quick to answer my own question earlier. Uh, there are signs and representation that happens here. However, representation is probably the wrong word, and that's why I keep getting stuck on this. Uh, the, the signs that are created on the body without organs inside of the second part, the second synthesis, are effectively meaningless. Uh, to quote from page early on 39, uh, uh, Signs may include a succession of characters from different alphabets in which an ideogram, pictogram, a tiny image of an elephant passing by, or a rising sun may suddenly make an appearance. In mixing together phonemes, morphemes, etc., without combining them, Papa's mustache, Mama's upraised arm, a ribbon, a little girl, a cop, a shoe suddenly turn up. Uh, it's the basically. It's a, and I'm now I'm remembering this discussion we had because uh, Lacan's entire concept of our unconscious is the symbolic order that places these things in relation to each other, and there's some level of subjectivity that comes out. But if we're talking about that second level, uh, that second synthesis, these signs exist and are just written on the body without organs. They aren't assigned meaning at this point. So that is the the representation that comes about here is meaningless, effectively, the sign system. Sorry to go back to that. Maybe what we can talk about in other breakouts groups as well is I think maybe I'm coming at this from, a, I said in the chat, like Steridian or Wittgensteinian or whatever you want to call it perspective about language itself. So like what they're saying about psychoanalysis seems to me equally applicable to language itself. So it, it doesn't seem separate. It's, a, it's all representation. So maybe that's yes. why I'm stuck on it, that that's it's all problematic in that sense. That was Derrida's critique of logocentrism. It's Wittgenstein's critique of language as well, in a sense. So, yeah. I mean, we will get into deep into representation in the next section. Actually, I kind of count on Alyosha to tell us how 
the stuff they talk about there relates to some Deridian stuff. <laughs> because um, there are some things that I recognize from reading Spivak. Well, since we're, uh, we're nearing the two-hour mark, uh, is there any other major questions, comments, thoughts that we want to have around this um, before we move on to the next uh, section? Because it seems like there's a lot for us to be going into here. But uh, would anyone like to try to sort of summarize, have a larger discussion around what they're trying to say with this entire section? Uh, I'd go back to a, a line. criminal do gays. I'd go back to a single line from 288. Um, Desiring machines work according to regimes of syntheses that have no equivalent in large aggregates. That's uh, the the separation in the way that things work in the molar versus the molecular, the desiring machines versus social machines, that the operations aren't the same and they don't work the same for sure. Go ahead, Alyosha. No, I was just going to say, I think we, I helped kill it with this uh, nitpicking tangent, so we might want to end it. But I think the nit nitpicking was pretty productive because it challenged a lot of the categories we had, but also the limits of thought and understanding that, you know, like the different levels in which they're talking to us through that text, which is not just one level. It's, it's always multiple. So It would be a worthwhile thing also for us to, for everyone to spend some time and maybe we actually need to go back and we've got a, We've got a few months uh, uh, before we finish this book, obviously, but it may be worth it for us to go back and really go over the three syntheses, how they operate. Now that we have um, the benefit of hindsight through the rest of the book, because as I'm rereading early sections of Anti-Oedipus, uh, the first 50 pages, um, and just sort of diving through these, I'm really grasping how the three syntheses work significantly better than I think I was early on. Um, it's a, it's going to be really worthwhile, I think, for us to go back through those. So we may do that after the end of the book, but it's definitely worthwhile for everyone to go through and re-understand sort of the setups between everything, how these work, the connective syntheses, how things connect, the disjunctive syntheses recording, how the reward for that is essentially a a sign without meaning being placed into the body without organs. And then the third, the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, consummation. Again, all of these things deeply come into that either or, or, or difference in repetition to lose hitting things over the head about uh, that. It's about consistently becoming, it's about change. It's about shift rather than things being as they are. Things as they are only exist in the molar level. We're actually at the molecular level, constantly in a state of becoming. <laughs> kind of how it sets for me. I'm not sure about that, uh, Mola, but we don't need to go into the this discussion again. Um, uh, but but uh, just, just on this, there's like always three types of ontologies. There's an ontology of uh, things as they are. There's the normative, the, the, like the, the reality. The first one is the reality. The second one would be a normative one, how things should be. And the third one is about becoming how things uh, could be. So there's always there's there's three possibilities into an ontology, so they're just moving towards the last one. Well, I think uh, with that, 
uh, I think someone else, I think it was Jack or Lou and Rob, thank all of you guys for doing this while I was uh, taken away by uh, Xfinity who decided not to have my internet super working. Um, but as it happens, thank you guys for setting this up and I look forward to all of it next week. I'm going to end it.